Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. So I wonder if anyone here can remember the first time you lit a fire by yourself. So I can't remember the first one particularly, but I remember countless attempts in my childhood back garden with twigs like this, like they did in the movies with my brother, and we were never successful, which I think was probably like a relief for my parents. Um, But there's a great story that circulates our family gatherings, which is about my dad when he was about four or five. Basically, he had this really big passion to see a fire engine and uh, where I come from it's quite a sheltered place and uh, it wasn't a common occurrence to see a fire engine and so he decided that if he wanted to see a fire engine he had to start a fire. Um, So lo and behold he successfully managed to set fire to the garden shed which um, sadly it didn't end up with the arrival of a fire engine but rather my papa with a garden hose just uh, putting it out like that so I think it was a bit underwhelming unfortunately. But um, I don't know about you, we were talking about it at the barbecue the other night, but I find fire dangerously mesmerising. I could, like, watch it for hours. I love the stuff. And um, actually, throughout the books of the Bible, often when we see fire present, God is at work at something exciting. So if you want to turn to 1 Kings 18, verse 17, I'm going to get us started on the passage and we're reading, that we're reading from today. So this is quite a dramatic passage. So we land in Israel which is a divided nation at this time. And as we've heard from previous weeks, King Ahab, the evil king, is on the throne and he has turned away from following the true God, Yahweh, and has turned instead to worship the idol Baal. So I'm just going to read it. So yeah, 1 Kings 18, verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even only I, am left as a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given to them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is God. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. 
And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the sacrifice, but there was no voice. No one answered, no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seers of seed. And he put the wood in order, and cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water, and pour it on the burnt offering, and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time, and they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time, and they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known that this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. So the false god of Baal that King Ahab was worshipping at the time was known as the god of fertility, rain and dew, which was a little ironic because as it stands, Israel hasn't seen rain for three years. It's currently in a drought. And as we see earlier in the chapter before, in 1 Kings 17, Elijah says, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there'll be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. So King Ahab is currently blaming Elijah for the lack of rain. But in reality, the drought is coming because the king has, like, and his country have turned away from God. And in Deuteronomy 28, it talks about the consequences of Israel if they turn, the people turn themselves away from the true God. It says in verse 24, the Lord will turn the rain of your country into dust and powder. So at the beginning of this chapter, we, saw, we see God instruct Elijah to go and kind of this like cook-off scenario where Elijah challenges 450 prophets of Baal on this mountain, Mount Carmel, to see whose God is more powerful. And he says, you'll get a bull, I'll get a bull, we'll both place them on altars and call the names of our gods and then we'll see who can set it alight, whose who's God will send fire from heaven. So then he basically says as well, we're not going to flip for it, I'm going, you're, you're going first, I'm going second. Which, in his defence, he's currently 450 versus one, so we'll give him that. Um, so the 450 prophets of Baal agree, they prepare their bull, and then they call on the name of their God from morning till noon, and there's nothing. Bearing in mind that when Baal was depicted in physical form, the guy was even holding a lightning bolt. So this should be a piece of cake for him. But there is nothing. And they cry out, they hobble, they limp, they dance, depending on what translation you have, around the altar, but there's still no reply. Elijah, we see then, in a bit of a bold move, begins to mock their God. He says, essentially in verse 27, looks like your God is asleep on the job, or like clearly he's busy, nature must be calling. Um, I had to relook at that one. I was like, did he literally just say that his God was on the toilet? I was like, I think he did, yeah. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, Elijah in this moment is basically like the king of trash talking, and this then makes the prophets of Baal even more distressed. And in verse 28, they even begin, begin to then cut themselves in desperation, crying out to their false God. And we're going to look at this passage in two parts, or rather like two rounds. And so we've got the prophet of Baal's sacrifice, 
and then also Elijah's. So what can we learn from round one? So in verse 21, it says, Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. So I think the first lesson here is if we live in two opinions, we will limp through life. A year or so ago, I had a crack at doing a diet where Monday to Thursday, I would eat insanely healthily. I would eat salads, hummus, no alcohol. And then Friday to Sunday, I'd eat burgers, chips, pizza, wine, bread, you name it, I ate it. And this was like the week's meal plan, basically. And embarrassingly, it took me and Rosie um, longer than it should have to realize that this diet wasn't going to work. Um, we were eating two contradicting diets and still expecting to see weight loss. And uh, instead, nothing changed. And I couldn't defend or argue that this diet was working because it wasn't. And in reality, it was quite comfortable like because it didn't take a high level of discipline uh, or change, really. Um, so this is what we see the Israelites are facing here. At the verse of, end of verse 21, after Elijah has questioned their wavering faith, they respond with nothing, and the people did not answer him a word. There was no objection to Elijah's claim, and there was no repentance either. So they didn't have the courage to either defend their opinion, yes, Baal is the one true God, you should follow him, or to change it. Instead, they were happy to live this life of low conviction, almost coasting, following something that gave them maybe surface value and meaning, but didn't demand much. And their silence confirms this almost motionless faith as well. Like me with my diet or the Israelites, I wonder if you've ever found yourself living two contradicting lifestyles and being faced with a grey in-between that just feels a little static. Our actions are a testament to our hearts. While our heart believes, our actions will follow. And this passage calls us to look at what are the idols in our lives what, that we put alongside God. Maybe we idolise our jobs, our relationships, status, our reputation, what people think of us. We live for a God that will never deliver. Like the prophets here, we cry out, we limp, we self-destruct to try and achieve the life we long for, but we get no answer, no fulfilment, and we're left desperate in this grey zone. In verse 26, it says, they limped around the offering they made. And the theologian John Piper says about this passage, I don't think those two uses of the word limp or hobble are an accident. If you try to get your life, your meaning, your worth, your fire from anything but the true God... You'll be lame all your life. The world may call it a dance. God calls it a limp. What are we hobbling around in the hope that it will bring life? A life of indecision and, uh, sorry, indecision and hobbling doesn't sound like a life well lived. But the gospel calls us to a life of devotion to a God who has, as it says in Psalm 121, will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Baal was a false god that couldn't deliver, who left his followers in self-destructive agony. But our God is a God who pulls us out of that and through Jesus has given us hope. In Psalm 40, it says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. 
our careers, relationships, reputations are false guards. They don't give us an unshakable, firm place to stand. So we can look at the prophet's unanswered sacrifice and ask ourselves, how do we relate? Are we living in a static in-between of indecision, two lifestyles that are contradictory? Or maybe there are idols in our lives that we are seeking purpose from other than God. So that takes us to round two. So after the prophets have danced, limped, hobbled, and pleaded with their God to set alight their altar, it's Elijah's turn. He begins by repairing the altar that was there, presumably from neglect, as under King Ahab's reign it hasn't been used. And then in verse 31 it says, Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. In a currently divided nation, these stones represent a united people. He then, along with the bull and the wood, adds them into the altar. Then, as if sending fire from heaven wasn't enough of a challenge, in verse 33, he says to the people, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. This is like the biggest flex ever, as he's basically saying to the prophets, this much, this is how much I believe that my God is going to come through. Then as though once wasn't enough, he says, do it again and again. And then Elijah turns to God from verse 36. He says, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I've done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you are God, that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord came and fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The water, the bull, the stones representing Israel, all consumed by God's power. For me, the most significant part of Elijah's sacrifice here is his prayer to God. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that they may know your God. You have turned their hearts back. Have you noticed Elijah doesn't even ask for fire to come here? There's like no mention of fire whatsoever in his prayer. Instead, he prays for the people right in front of him. Let us be known that this day that you are God in Israel, this people may know you are God. You have turned their hearts back. Elijah's prayer is personal and local, and he doesn't refer to the cook-off, Baal, or even the soggy bull that's in front of him. But he focuses on the people in front of him that they may know that you are God. This contest is advertised as whose God is stronger, but it's also a battle for the hearts of the people of Israel. God is in the business of turning people's hearts back to him. Through the eyes of religion and the prophets here, they were all doing all that they could to get their God's attention, crying out, cutting themselves, doing all they could to try and get Baal's heart to turn to them. What will it take for me to turn his heart to me? That is religion. What can I do to make myself right with God, to make myself clean and worthy? But Elijah clearly says in verse 37 that you have turned their hearts back. We can come to God not because of anything that we've done, but because of everything that he has done. His heart is already turned to us. It's our hearts that are the problem. It's our hearts that need to be turned to him. And maybe you're new to this whole church thing and you don't really know about the measures to which God loves you. And if that is you, I would love to pray with you at the end of the meeting. But know this, God is longing for the day that your heart will turn back to him. 
Like the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15, who left his father, went his own way, fell on desperate times, and then when he was at his lowest, ran back to his father, who was waiting for him with open arms. Jeremiah 31 verse 3 says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. His heart is turned towards us. So Elijah prayed this prayer, and then the fire came. And as I mentioned earlier, when we see the presence of fire in the Bible, rarely is it insignificant. Often it can mean the sealing of a covenant. So, for example, if you turn your Bibles to Genesis 15, in Genesis, God promised Abraham that he would, be, uh, he would have many descendants, as many as the stars that are in the sky, despite the fact that Abraham and his wife Sarah had no children at this time. So instructed by God, Abraham then begins to carry out this bit of a weird traditional Chaldean covenant that basically involves cutting animals in two and then placing them in parallel lines either side. And then the two participants of the covenant would walk together through this and like that would seal the promise, basically. So this was a blood agreement, meaning that if either parties of this covenant broke the promise, they would be cut in two like the animals before them. But as we see in chapter 15, verse 17, it says, When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. God, in his supreme power, appeared in the form of a smoking firepot and blazing torch here and passed through the pieces alone. The fire here signified God functioning as both parties in this covenant, sealing the promise as his own, not reliant on Abraham, but purely reliant on him. The firepot signifies God's promise and power. And this happens multiple times within the Bible. So we've got with Moses, when God appears as a burning bush in Exodus 3 and promises to bring the Israelites out of Egypt to the promised land. And then the arrival of the promised Holy Spirit in Acts 2, verse 3, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. When God appeared on Mount Carmel and came down in blazing fire, he not only displayed his mighty power, but also was sealing the promise that he is a God of his word. Fire from heaven This is kind of crazy, like the amount of times I have needed help lighting a barbecue or a campfire, and I've been on my hands and knees blowing it from down here. um, But the idea of fire coming down in that moment is kind of very, very scary, but also awe-inspiring at the same time. This miraculous display of power caused the prophets to see this could only be the work of the one true God. I wonder if any of you guys have had one of those moments in your lives where you can say that, that was only possible because of God. That was God coming through in mighty power. And for the prophets of Baal, this caused them to fall on their faces and say, the Lord, he is God. And then we see at the end of this chapter, after three years of drought, God sends the promised rain. Elijah, with instruction from God, put his faith into prayer and action, and the Lord came through. Theologian Paul Rezkala says, not only does uh, God not only ordains the ends, he also ordains the means. When God speakers, speaks promises over our lives, 
we can take comfort from the fact that he will also provide the means to see those promises come to fruition. This is something that I've really grappled with over the years, and God spoke into my life when I was at a young age, and 12 years later, I'm still yet to see the full fruit of those promises. But I know that the God who delivers the promised reign, who redeemed us all through his son that was also promised, will also deliver in my life too. And there are there promises that God has put in your life that you're waiting to see to come to fruition. God's sovereignty in these situations, um, it's not an excuse for us to sit back and simply say, all in God's timing, which is obviously a very true statement. It is all in God's timing. But Elijah was an active participant in seeing God's promises fulfilled, and we can be a part of that too. But like what we learned in Genesis 15 just before with Abraham, we can take comfort that God is ultimately the fulfiller of his promises. The prophets of Baal were indecisive. They were chasing after the wrong things, false gods. Their hearts weren't turned toward the Lord. But God is relentlessly pursuing us. His heart is towards us. He's a consuming fire and he has placed promises over all of our lives. He has promised to give us strength, to give us rest, to protect us. He has promised us freedom from sin, to be with us. And he who has began a good work in us will carry it on to completion. I'm just going to get the band back and I'm just going to pray for us. Now, when I was preparing this preach, I felt like it was for three different groups of people. So for one group, maybe you're not a Christian and you know, kind of like very, like I said earlier, very new to this all, and like, oh, this God, I don't know who this God is, who is he, does he love me? Um, And then also for those of us who may be Christians for a while, and um, do you guys want to stand? Um, Maybe been Christians for a while, and are starting to maybe notice idols in our lives that that have come, and we see more purpose and fulfillment in them than we do God. And then lastly, for those of us who maybe have yet to see promises fulfilled and living in that and waiting on God for that. 